So we're in a book, uh, a series on the book of Acts. And so you can turn with me to Acts and um, you're gonna, you'd, you'd know it pretty quickly anyway. So I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna confess it up front. We're gonna go out of order. And if you have a personality where sequence really matters, this might really drive you crazy. Um, going out, out of order in the book of Acts. Uh, instead of going chronologically, but I figured Pete spent two weeks on the first 10 verses, so that gave me permission to, to just jump all the way to chapter 15. Um, it, it made sense in my mind. Um, so we're jumping into chapter 15, and really what we're talking about this morning is something I've been thinking about for 15 years. Uh, and has been weighing on me pretty heavily lately. And it's the, the topic of, um, of disappointment with other Christians or when other Christians disappoint us. Um, and I think it's something, if we're honest, most everyone here has dealt with. Um, I know a lot of people are coming to Antioch having been victims of what they would call spiritual abuse at other churches uh, or in other places or had communities of, of Christians really left you hurt or wounded. And, and, and some of those might be scars, some of those might be open wounds. But I, I really think this is a, an area that we don't talk about enough that we all deal with a lot of pain uh, left over from disappointment with other Christians or other believers. And so that's really the subject I wanna tackle this morning and, and do it a little bit at length. But in Acts chapter 15, we read, uh, we read this. Chapter 15, verse 36. This is basically, just to set the context, this is after um, Paul and, and Barnabas have gone out and ministered and, and they've kind of come back from that journey and they had taken Mark with them. Uh, Mark, the writer of the gospel, um, Mark in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And they had taken Mark, who seemed to be a younger individual with them, at some point, he left them on that first missionary journey. They come, they come back and, and we get this, this kind of beginning here. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. In other words, let's go do another circuit and let's go back to these towns that we went to, visit the people that we preach to, that, that uh, we baptized, that were converted and encourage them, see how they're doing. I mean, uh, it's not the the age of, of social media. So you literally are wondering, are they still walking by faith? Are they doing okay? Are they even still alive? And so Paul is saying, let's go check on them. Let's go visit them. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work on their previous journey. So they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commanded by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. It's really interesting. Paul, you get the, you get the idea that Paul is very, very direct, very straightforward, very focused, very type A. Uh, there's nothing about Paul that says he's anything other than that. Right? If you read uh, Paul's letters, if you read the book of Acts, 
Paul is a very focused, assertive individual. Barnabas, you get a bit of a different sense. Barnabas, his name actually uh, comes from two words put together, the prefix bar, which means son of, uh, and then the, the ending there, which is the word for encouragement. So you get kind of son of encouragement. Bar mitzvah is son of the commandments or the law. So when uh, a, a Jewish boy goes and has his bar mitzvah, it's as if he's going from being responsible to his dad, accountable to his dad, to now being seen as accountable to the law, being a son of the law. And Barnabas was, was someone that was the son of encouragement. In other words, you get the sense that he was a helper, that uh, when we talk about someone having the, the gift of Barnabas or being like a Barnabas, they're a wonderful, uh, wonderful helper, usually to a very uh, prickly personality that they come along and, and kind of smooth it out or make it okay and, and make, make it so that there can be two instead of this one dominant strong personality that maybe steps on toes. And so that's kind of the picture that we get in scripture of Barnabas. And Barnabas has this cousin, this younger guy that comes with them on the first journey and in some ways trying to disciple him up or let him be a part of the work. And either because it was too hard, there was a lot of beatings. A lot of times they were imprisoned or stoned uh, under death threats, whether it was too hard or, or for whatever reason we don't quite know, Mark stopped short of the finish line on that journey. And to Paul... Um, that was a failure. That, that meant he couldn't be trusted. That me meant he wasn't the, the right person for, for sharing in that leadership role of journeying with and preaching the gospel. For Barnabas, it meant something different. We can, we can understand Barnabas a little bit more because he's the one that suggests Mark. And not only does he suggest Mark, but he's so committed to the idea of Mark having another chance at this that he's willing to break with Paul, which is which is a very strong thing for his helper encouragement personality to break from Paul and to say he's now going to be the leader uh, alone, standing alone, taking Mark with him. And so this idea is that, that Barnabas is incredibly committed to the spiritual formation or the leadership development of Mark. Does that make sense? I want to back up uh, a little ways now and look at a different disagreement. You see, um, Barnabas wasn't the only person that Paul had a disagreement with. Uh, Paul had a disagreement with Peter. And the disagreement with Peter, we read about in one of Paul's letters. And it says this, so Galatians chapter 2, if you flip over just a couple books. Galatians chapter 2, it says this. When Cephas, and that's the name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Another word, uh, another, another way of looking at this idea of a sharp disagreement. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, he was wrong. Like, um, this is Paul's side of the story, obviously, right? Uh, I, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by uh, their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, the one who was encouragement, the includer, was led astray. 
So early in the church, the rules are still somewhat fluid. What's right, what's not right, what's okay, what's not okay. And at that point in time, Jews were not supposed to eat with Gentiles, but this new preaching of grace was basically saying Jesus died so that we could be one. Uh, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, um, free man or, or, or slave, that we're all one in Christ. And if we're one in Christ, we, we break bread together. How do we know that we break bread together? Because we take communion together. And if we share in the body of Christ together, then how can we not also go out then and have fellowship meals or basically sit around the dinner table together as well? And so this is the, the realization of, of the gospel as it's coming forward. And, and Peter was living into this and enjoying it. Like, this is amazing. And he's eating with Gentiles. And then all of a sudden, some very powerful men came from Jerusalem. Religious leaders, probably rich uh, folk, or certainly well-connected and influential. And they come up and they say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? This has implications. You can't eat with these people. You, you're getting ahead of us. We're not even doing this in Jerusalem. Like, you gotta stop doing this. Peter, like, what are you, what are you doing? You're a leader. What, what are people back in Jerusalem gonna think of you? And basically, they get in Peter's ear, and Peter um, does what, what we know um, happens with, with peer pressure. He, he succumbs to it. So the peer pressure, the, the desire to be thought well of by our peers um, causes Peter to be a little less confident and he begins to back up and he's now no longer gonna eat with the Gentiles. Maybe he'll preach to them, maybe he'll teach to them, but there's a power differential that he's putting back in place. He's not gonna eat with them. A sign of, of the equality no longer being there that the, the gospel of grace was meant to bring about. Does that make sense? And so Paul... Again, not afraid of conflict, uh, confronts him. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because the works of the law, no, um, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So you get this fascinating thing, goes on to verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might be alive uh, with God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So Peter, in front of everybody, call, uh, Paul, in front of everybody, calls out Peter and says, Peter, you're acting as if we're still in the Old Testament and Jesus didn't die so that we could all be one um, by faith through grace and, and be reconciled to him that way. You, you make it, you make it seem as if it's somehow our, our religious observances, our, our sacramental kind of um, devotional life, the way we contort ourselves, being in the right place, doing the right symbols at the right time. It's not a formula, Peter. We know that now. That's what Jesus came for. 
It's by grace. And by grace, we all come together with equality. By formula, some people fall outside the lines and, and they don't fit. And so Paul confronts him. It's an interesting thing. I've always said, I've always wondered if Peter in heaven uh, has had multiple conversations with Paul, had him over for, for back porch coffee, uh, which I hear they serve in heaven, um, and, and had this conversation literally once every couple hundred years. Um, Paul, I get the conflict. The conflict was fine. Um, you know, we all get it wrong sometimes, no big deal. But Paul, why did you write about it in, in Scripture? Like you knew, you knew that was going to be codified for all the believers in all places and all times. You know, that's kind of not cool. Like the one thing everyone's going to remember me for is what I got wrong and you got right. Like way to go. Like you sure came out looking good there, right? And, and I just think that's really interesting that Peter gets it wrong once and it, and it shows up in Scripture as this lesson, this object lesson for all time. Here's the question I've started asking. What if Barnabas had written a letter? Like on the second missionary journey and he sets off and he's with Mark and he's had this sharp dispute with Paul and he, and he starts to go forward and, and he, he's now writing to some people to explain why, why he and Paul have broken company. What if Barnabas had written a letter? What do you think it would have said? Uh, you know, Paul and I had such a sharp dispute. Paul always thinks about the projects and he always really thinks about um, the, the mission and the results, but he can really miss the people in the process. Um, he puts sometimes the, the, the program over the people. And, and in this instance, he was gonna choose this calling uh, of making disciples over the idea that we actually make a disciple while we're preaching this message. And Paul was in the wrong. If we can't give people like Mark another chance, um, then what, what is there really to this message of grace that we're preaching? And if, if, if weak people can't somehow be redeemed so that they can become strong people, then what good is all that type A strength in the first place? If we're really relying on the grace of God to bring this message in power, like you say, Paul, that it doesn't come with the power of our words, but Paul says, we come in weakness so that Christ's power gets the glory as the message is brought to these people. Like, Paul, if you really believe that, then we should have modeled that kind of too. And um, I, I'm curious what Barnabas would, would have said. I'm curious what Paul would have said if Paul had put this into one of his letters. Barnabas wanted to bring Mark and um, the gospel message is no small thing. People find excuses all the time to stop preaching. They're either ashamed or it becomes too difficult, but there are always obstacles to preaching the gospel, yet we have this command to go and to be witnesses. And I have chosen to be a witness even if it costs me my life. And I do it um, for people that convert to Christianity at their own peril as well. That some of these people that become Christians may lose their lives. 
And I walk around with this weight of responsibility that is not just about me, but it's also about these churches, these communities, about these people that are in leadership positions, these people that have converted and what might happen to them. And I walk around with this awesome weight of responsibility. And sometimes I feel incredibly alone that other people turn away too quickly or nobody understands my type A behavior. They say things like, you're no fun. You don't smile as much as you used to. Um, you, you need a hobby. You know, you never, you never talk about anything else other than this mission that you're on to bring the gospel to other places. And sometimes I feel lonely. They say I put projects or programs over people. That's not really it. I walk by faith. I don't think of either. I just try and put one foot in front of the other and live by obedience the best way I know how. And I have to do this calling. God has called me to do it and I'm doing it the best I know how. And yes, it's really weird or hard when people don't understand that. It's especially hard when my friend Barnabas didn't understand that it didn't seem wise or prudent for me to take a risk, a risk that's not just a risk for me, but also these people that, that I love and I've ministered to and it didn't seem wise or prudent to take that risk. Yeah, we had a disagreement. But I, I believe I was doing the right thing or I at least believe that my motive was right in why I was making the decision that I made. And Barnabas taking Mark, I wish them well. Um, but that was a decision that I disagreed with or I wasn't willing to take. Who's right? Who's right? I've been in sermons before where it's been preached which one of them was right. I don't, I don't think... I don't think we know the answer to that. I don't think we get to say which one of those people are right. I, there might not be a right. What if, what if the Holy Spirit was speaking to Barnabas a calling or a, a vision that was different than the vision and the calling that the Holy Spirit was speaking to Paul? What if God actually knew that the, the kingdom was gonna be best served by the two of them going different directions? by Paul being aggressive and taking some, some other type A's and they were gonna go commando-like and, and minister this way. And Barnabas being a little bit more of a disciple maker and going this way and that through that, even his own personality and what it meant that Mark had to do on that missionary journey, that Mark was actually gonna grow up into a, a leadership role that he never could have, have achieved if he was in Paul's shadow. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit knew this. What's really interesting is that we see that a number of years later, um, well over a decade later, that when Paul's towards the end of his ministry, that he writes in prison uh, these words. That he writes... Um, in Colossians, he writes... Uh, the Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And then in parentheses, you've received instructions about him. And if he comes to you, welcome him. In other words, someone that, that Paul is commending as, as a leader in the faith. And a little bit more of an intimate uh, verse. Timothy is a letter that Paul writes as he's in prison, as he's very lonely. Uh, we learn in, in Timothy that other people have left him. Uh, a, a lot of people kind of want to just 
get farther away because when you're near Paul, bad things happen to you at that point in his ministry. And so he's really locked up, really lonely. And it says this in 2 Timothy 4, only Luke is with me. Now go get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. He, Mark, is helpful to me in my ministry. What a change over the years that the person that wasn't helpful becomes helpful. The person that was small or weak or seen as, as kind of on a different level ends up writing one of the four gospels that have come down to us. Um, it seems like Peter was wrong when Paul confronted him. Yet in the end, Peter and Paul end up in an interesting spot. Peter writes that uh, there are very difficult things in the scriptures, um, that Paul writes many such things in his letters, but you know he does it um, in speaking truth to you and you should listen to him. That's Peter, a number of years later, talking about Paul who confronted him directly, cost face, uh, maybe damaged his image, maybe just offended him in that whole confrontation. But you see Peter later as this chief of all the apostles writing to, to the churches and saying, Paul writes many difficult things in his letters, but he does it on your behalf and you need to pay attention to that. And you see Peter commending Paul. So you see conflict between Paul and Peter, yet somehow they end up in ministry pulling in the same direction. You see, see conflict between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark and somehow you end up seeing Mark and Paul coming back together, working together in ministry, united or reconciled in some kind of a way. There's a couple observations. One comes from when, uh, before Tamara and I were married. Um, there was a lot of, there was several people that, uh, that told Tamara that she shouldn't marry me. I was in ministry, I was doing a college group, and, uh, but I was really, really rough around the edges, really rough around the edges. And I was, I was a 20, at the time, 26-year-old version of me, okay? So if you think I'm rough around the edges now at age 43, or if I'm a little bit type A like Paul now at age 43, then, then you should have known me at age 26. I couldn't hide it. Like it, it was, it was everywhere. Um, it was all with good intentions, but there was just a lot of, lot of my personality everywhere. Um, and so there was, so there were people that came to Tamara and said, um, you shouldn't marry him. He, you know, he's really rough around the edges and, you know, there's still a lot to be, to be shown, a lot to be proven. And it was a very difficult time for Tamara and I. Uh, this is very vulnerable, by the way. Um, it was a very difficult time for Tamara and I to walk through that in our engagement process after we were already engaged. And there was a season where it felt really touch and go. Here, there was a lot of Christian people that were, that were actually spending energy trying to, to talk her out of pursuing this relationship. And so there was a drive one night where we, I was, I was kind of doing this spiritual discipline of I wasn't going to defend myself and I was going to let God defend me. And it sounded really spiritual. 
Um, and it was, really not my, it was really not my personality. It was not my personality. And I had a best friend, and right when things were at their worst, I was talking to my best friend, and my best friend said, screw that. You need to go back to what you do best, and you need to just talk. And you need, you need, you need, to, you need to explain to, to Tamara what, you just need to explain stuff to her, you know? And, and so he kind of just said, forget this whole silence thing. And so Tam and I went for a drive that night and I can still remember it um, as clear as, uh, as if it was yesterday, but I used Paul as an example. And I said, yes, um, yes, sometimes I have a hard time with relationships. Yes, sometimes I've offended people. Um, yes, sometimes I get it wrong. Um, but that doesn't make me bad. Um, even Paul had a lot of disputes with people. Like having a strong personality is not necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot of people that didn't like Jesus and Jesus took it further than anyone else. He used to call people like a brood of snakes and vipers. Like I've never done that, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna hold... You know, if people are going to call me to account on, on some things, you know, then what would they be saying about Jesus, you know? Um, and that was the first time I ever articulated something that I, I hold very dear even to this day that I think the number one virtue is teachability. Because with teachability, it means you can grow in every other virtue. And I explained to Tamara that I might be a negative two now, um, but like all those people have told you, I was a negative 10 two years ago. Because <laughs> they'd, they'd told her that I'd grown a lot. So I'm like, look, that's not in dispute, is that I'm teachable. And I'm a, yes, I'm a negative two now, but give me another decade, I'm gonna be a positive 10. And there's plenty of Christian guys out there that are twos, and you know what? They're always gonna be twos. <laughs> and... uh no, it was, it, was a, it was a scary conversation, but it was, we don't have a concept for conflict with Christians or even Christian leaders or, or even understanding how conflict is a part of not only becoming disappointed, but leading to reconciliation in the end if people have a teachable or good heart. Or that even in some conflicts, the Holy Spirit might be the antagonist on both sides. And that we can't just slap people with, with being confrontational or direct or that, that people sometimes take issue. But we have to try and somehow get a little bit deeper and parse it all the way out. One of the most interesting verses for me is in the book of Mark with Jesus. And Jesus r restores a demon-possessed man. But listen to what happens. So this man's demon-possessed and Jesus walks up on them and there's a large herd of pigs and the demons are imploring Jesus that they be cast into the pigs. And so Jesus casts these demons into the pigs um, and, and they go into the pigs, a number of about 2,000 pigs, and they rush down the steep bank and into the lake and then they were drowned. You can actually see uh, the region of the, of, I mean, it's not a big, um, like a Galilee, the lake. The Sea of Galilee, they call it a sea. It's a lake. 
It's not a massive lake. And you actually know which side they were on because they were going towards the Decapolis. And you can actually see probably where this happened if you go to um, Israel today. It's fascinating to envision this. And so they run down, uh, they go in and they drowned. And so everyone goes around talking about this um, demon-possessed man and, and how he'd been healed and how all these pigs had died as a result. And so they're like, let's just get Jesus out of here. It, it, he, his personality and, and just having him around is a little bit much. Um, and so let's push him out. Let's, let's have him go. And then here's this interesting verse. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. So picture the scene now. A person is with Jesus and saying, Jesus, let me follow you. Jesus, let me follow you. Let me go with you, Jesus. Now, if I stopped right there, in any church in America, what would we preach is, is gonna be Jesus' answer to that question? Is there a Christian alive that wouldn't, that wouldn't immediately say, oh, and Jesus will take all comers, and, and Jesus, you know, all he wants is us to follow him, and Jesus would never turn you down, right? And yet, in this particular instance, Jesus did not let him. So the man went away and back to the Decapolis. It's possible that man went back to his city and told everyone about what Jesus had done for him. Jesus healed me. The dude's pretty amazing. Here's how he did it. Here's what it felt like when I was being healed. There's a possibility he went back to that city and was disappointed with Jesus. when someone else came into the city and talked about Jesus, yeah, he's all right. I don't think he's all that great. I don't, I don't know. He might have loved Jesus, but always carried around in, in him uh, this, this weird insecurity, like, was I not good enough to follow Jesus? Um, why did Jesus say that to me? I think at the very least, there's, there's, there's a chance that at different times, this person was disappointed with Jesus. Do we know why Jesus said that he couldn't go with? We can speculate. Um, it's one thing to have a tax collector and some fishermen with you, but a guy that was running around naked in a cemetery and demon-possessed just a week ago, maybe not so. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Um, the dude, the dude might have been really, really, really socially awkward and Jesus might have just known that the mission of going around and preaching the gospel, as much as I love this guy, um, it's just not gonna work. Can't, can't, can't have him in, in that inner circle. It might be that the inner circle was already full enough. It might be that Jesus saw an opportunity to send a man who had a story back into his village to be a witness to what Jesus was teaching. It might have been a better use of that man's time and energy to go back and to be a reflection of what Jesus came to do to heal and preach the kingdom than to go with. I don't know what Jesus' reasons were, but here's the thing I know. Unlike Paul, I know that Jesus didn't get it wrong. 
So that means that even when we get it right, oftentimes, we what? Say it. I'm sitting down now. I know I'm not very dynamic. I know this is a boring sermon. I, I know it's not enough body language, whatever. But even when we get it right, we sometimes what? Disappoint people. I've been um, the victim of church abuse myself, spiritual abuse. I'd say ah, both. I don't think about it often because I'm a pastor. I'm a church planter. I, I turn a lot of my energy into what can I do? I care about the local church, but I've been hurt by the church. Um, a week ago, my wife, something happened in her life, Tamara, um, that she got out of bed in the middle of the night because some old wounds had resurfaced and, and things were stirring around so strongly that um, she ended up having to write them down to get them out of her system. And I asked her if I could have permission to read this. Um, and this is Tamara's story that you might not know. <clears throat> I've been hurt by the church. I've been crushed. I've been wounded. I've been robbed of my dignity, belittled and shamed. I've been torn apart. Like a seed, I've been crushed between mortar and pestle, reduced to dust. If with two hands I could rend this mortal shell to expose my broken and wounded soul, you would see the scars Thick, jagged scars that can only come from the mending of deep, brutal wounds. I am forever marred. The scars tell the tale. They are witness to the pain. Yet I cling to the church. I give my life to the church. I find community in the church. I give my children, my own flesh and blood, the ones I hold most dear in this world, to the church. I believe in the church. I love the church. I trust the church. But why? Because the church is Christ's body, my body, my own spirit's flesh and bones. I am the church. My wounds were cut by the hand of one individual, a poor representation of Christ, a distortion of the church, a mirage, a fiction. Can I say that one mere person or two or several define the body of Christ? Therefore, I reject Christ's body, his church. Will I keep a different standard for the church than the standard by which I wish to be examined and judged? When I fail, should not my family cast me to the curb, disown me, 